How did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with New Radio Media, and we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. If you can get through our new phone screener for today, doing us a special favor, Alana, thank you very much. That's 844-999-9249, 844-999-9249, or you can email us at letstalktorah at gmail.com. So, uh, I don't know, we keep saying the same thing over and over again. It's nasty outside. It's snowing here in Detroit but it is warm and toasty in the studio. Not as warm as last week, thank you to Tony, but still quite warm. Um, and we'll ask our guest, who's going to be here in the next segment, um, how his weather is. He's out in L.A. Um, I'm not bringing him in to talk about the weather, but might as well find out how warm they are. Actually, that guest is a, uh, his name is Bill Aaron, a photographer with a very inspirational book, that he's put out called uh, New Beginnings. We'll talk about that in the next segment. Really a fascinating book. I appreciate he sent it to me. I enjoyed it so much as I read it. Once I read it, I said, okay, Bill, when are we going to do this? We got to talk about this week's Torah portion. We got to talk about Jacob is going to leave for a wife. He's going to actually get four wives. Uh, We're going to talk about Jacob's ladder, which you may or not be familiar with. We'll talk about his father-in-law love on his trickery and how... Jacob dealt with it, and the, the creation of the 12 tribes. So let's first get into uh, the beginning of the Torah portion. We'll dive in as much as we can get uh, accomplished uh, before we talk to Bill in the next segment. So this week's Torah portion uh, leads right after last week. Last week's Torah portion, Jacob was told by his father and mother to leave where they were living. It wasn't safe. Jacob's brother Esau was out to get him because he had stolen the blessings, at least according to Esau, Jacob had stolen the blessings. So both mother and father understood it would be a good idea for Jacob to pack out of town. Rachel, I mean, I'm sorry, Rebecca knew that Esau wanted to kill Jacob. Isaac may not have known that, but again, he wanted family. He wanted Jacob to marry family, just like he had married family, just like Abraham had married family. So he sent on his way to go to an area called Haran, probably somewhere in Iraq, um, that area by uh, Baghdad. So one of those areas on the map, but pretty far away. On his way out, Jacob actually takes a detour, and he wants to stop and pray in the same location that Isaac had been offered up. Isaac, his father, had been offered up as a sacrifice. That is the, the modern-day location of the Temple Mount um, where, the, where the first and second temple stood in that same spot. Jacob wanted to go there and pray and then be on his way. But God wanted Jacob to hang around a little bit longer, so he made the sunset early, so Jacob has to go to sleep. It says he got a bunch of rocks to pile around his head, 12 stones actually to be, uh, to be exact, and he puts them around his head, 
And we'll get back to those 12 stones in a few minutes. And he goes to sleep, and he has a dream. And in the dream, he sees this ladder. The ladder, it's debatable exactly where the foot and head of the ladder were in relationship to the land of Israel, over Beersheba, over Jerusalem, if the top of the ladder was over Jerusalem, wherever Jacob has this ladder, and he understands from the dream that this is the location for prayers. And in this dream, he's watching angels go up the ladder and angels come down the ladder, and there's many different meanings to what, uh, what these angels were representing, perhaps representing the different exiles and how long each exile would be, uh, perhaps showing the angels that accompanied him in the land of Israel leaving and the angels that would accompany Jacob out of Israel um, coming down, perhaps representing the angels that had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah that because those angels had said were destroying instead of God's destroying, so they had to stay on this world for a couple hundred years. So they get to go back up. Different, different uh, ideas that are brought down by different commentaries in the Midrash. And God speaks to Jacob and tells him he'll take care of him and he's going to spread out and he'll have the whole land of Israel and his children will spread out and Jacob doesn't need to worry. God's going to take care of him. Jacob wakes up the next morning with a with an interesting um, reaction. As most people, as I was telling my class this week, most people, if you just had a dream and God is talking to you and you see this ladder and angels and, and all kinds of blessings, you would imagine your first reaction is, wow, I just had a conversation with God. God's going to take care of me. All the promises, that would be a, that would have been my reaction. That's for sure. Jacob's reaction was quite different. Jacob says, wow, this is such a holy place. I can't believe I slept here. That was his first reaction. And then interesting in the verse, there's a very interesting uh, uh, word. Uh, The verse changes from the stones that he placed around his head. And it says the stone. He picked up the stone that he placed by his head. And he set it up as, a, as an altar, and he, and he poured oil on it for a sacrifice. So the commentaries discuss what happened. It was 12 stones the night before. And now he wakes up in the morning, and it's one stone. What happened? So Rashi says, brings down also from a Medrash, that uh, this, whatever this means, I can't explain everything. Um, I would like to, but some things are a little bit beyond. I have a story, maybe at the end of the show, to put it all in perspective. But it says, the stones were fighting. I want the righteous man to be sleeping on me. So God said, fine, all the stones became one stone. So says the commentaries. So as a way to remember this story, um, I have a joke. I don't have too many jokes, but this one's a pretty good one. So there was a, there was a man came. A man came to somebody's house. And the host offered him to sit down on a wicker chair. I hate to say it this way. I imagine everyone knows what a wicker chair is. Um, just in case you don't know what a wicker chair is, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a woven, a reed or stick type woven chair with a, a lot of little holes. It's called a wicker chair. Again, I'm imagining most people know what it is, but I, I teach so much in class and I find out words that I grew up with, and nowadays no one knows what I'm talking about, like a payphone, which I actually saw one recently. Um, so therefore, we explain. Okay, so the the host offers his guest to sit down in this wicker chair. The, the guest was a rather, rather large fellow. 
and this rather large fellow sits down on the wicker chair, and the whole wicker chair breaks, and the man collapses and falls straight onto the floor. Uh, the, the guest's a little embarrassed, and the host tells his guest, don't be embarrassed. You are obviously a very righteous man. So the guest looks at the host, why do you think I'm a righteous man? Because I fell through your chair, and I damaged, and I broke your chair. So the host continued and said, you're just like Jacob. And now the guest says, you're making fun of me. You're, you're telling me that I'm like one of the greatest of all time? So he says, no, just like by Jacob, that all the stones were fighting to be under the head of that righteous man and they became one big stone. In your case, all the holes were crying out to God, let this righteous man sit on me. So God said, fine. And all those little holes became one big hole, and therefore you fell right through. Ta-da! Okay. You liked it, you didn't like it, you got it, you didn't get it. Re-listen to the archive, you'll figure it out. Okay, anyways, so Jacob is now on his way to his future father-in-law, Lavan. Again, there's stories in the Midrash. You would imagine if Isaac, a wealthy man, is sending his son to his brother-in-law, who is a notorious thief, and charlatan, and trickster, and will do anything to get somebody else's money, if he wants Jacob to come back with his wife, he better send them with money. Well, something happened, and Jacob will arrive with no money. It is clear in the verse, Jacob arrives with no money. So again, the Midrash asks, what happened to Jacob's money? Can't be that he's going penniless. doesn't make sense that his father would send him that way. So again, the Midrash says that um, when Jacob was leaving, Esau's son, by the name of Eliphaz, caught up with him. And Eliphaz was told by his father to kill Jacob. For whatever reason, the father felt he couldn't do battle with Jacob. He figured his kid would be successful. And in Esau's family, what your father says comes first. All other rules are pushed to the side. We spent a lot of time last week talking how Asa was the greatest in history in honoring a father. So Asa passed down to his children, we listen to what our fathers say. What our father says is gold. Nothing else matters. Everything else is second place. So uh, Eliphaz is told by his father, murder. Murder is bad, but since my father told me to murder, I'm allowed. But it seems this Eliphaz grew up studying with Jacob. So Eliphaz says to Jacob, you know, my father, I mean, this is a wild conversation. My father sent me to kill you, and you know that we do whatever our father says, but maybe you have a legal loophole. So Jacob says, as a matter of fact, I do have a legal loophole. Legal loophole, sorry about that. Um, the Talmud says that there are four people that even though they're alive, they're considered dead. Uh, some with leprosy, but not the... Not the, not the spiritual leprosy, like a, a real leprosy where the body just decomposes or disintegrates or whatever it does. Um, somebody who's blind, certainly in those days a blind person, not like nowadays where there's help, a blind person really had nothing. Um, some will say a person without children, that's a different conversation. And a person who's poor, a person who has absolutely zero, that person is considered dead. He has nothing, he can't live, he's... I mean, it's worse than homeless. It's not like there were soup kitchens or anything for those people. So uh, Jacob says, you can't give me leprosy. You're not going to make me blind. So uh, take all my money. And if you take all my money, 
then legally, as far as the Talmud is concerned, I'm dead. And that way you can tell your father you fulfilled your responsibility. Yeah, of course he'll figure out you didn't really kill me, and he'll say, you know, that's not what I meant. But by that time, I'll be long gone, and you'll be uh, much richer. So Eliphaz says, sounds like a good deal to me. I'll take the money. Why Eliphaz didn't say, I'll just kill you and take your money anyways, is an interesting thought. I don't know. But it could be Eliphaz didn't want to bother with fighting because then, you know, you can always lose. This way, it's a win-win for Eliphaz, and Jake will be happy. So now Jacob shows up um, in Haran, penniless. I mean, he's got a walking stick. I'm sure he has uh, clothes on his back, even though that may be debatable. But he shows up, and he's looking for a family. So there's a well, and there's a bunch of shepherds that uh, are waiting around the well. And Jacob asks them, like, what are you guys doing? Like, it's too early in the day to be bringing the sheep to be watered. They should be grazing longer. So the shepherds explain that in this area of the world, um, water is hard to come by. And this well is one of those wells. It, it's not a very um, full well. It uh, has some water, and it seems every night it replenishes, but not very much. If we let one shepherd come early, he'll take all the water, and we'll be left with nothing. So we can't be in that situation. So therefore, we have this humongous stone that is placed over the well. It takes a whole bunch of us shepherds to get it off the well. It's like uh, it's a, our own uh, security system to make sure one guy doesn't come and steal. Uh, that's what they told Jacob. Then Jacob sees Rachel, his future wife, coming to, I guess she was a shepherdess because she had no brothers, at least at this time. So she's bringing the sheep to the watering hole, to the well. Also, she's one of the shepherds. Jacob sees her. He sees with uh, what's called Ruach HaKodesh, with uh, like a Holy Spirit. He sees that this is supposed to be who he's going to marry, and he gets some super strength, and by himself, he picks up the stone, moves it over, and the water comes to the very top of the well. So this is something we find um, in many, many places where water rises to the top of the well for Jewish people. We find it by Rebecca. We find it by Rachel. We find it by Moses. It seems it was understood in those days this was something, I don't want to say common, but something that happened. And the water, so there will be an, an, a, an unlimited water supply for the shepherds for the next 20 years. Jacob will be in the um, in this Haran area, working to pay for his wives, working to build up his own wealth. So Jacob will be working for the next 20 years. As long as he's there, the water supply is unending. As soon as Jacob will pack out of town, the water will go back to its old ways, and I'm assuming the shepherds found that stone and rolled it back on. So he sees Rachel, and he tells her that uh, he's looking for Lavan, he's... Uh, He's going to marry her. So Rachel warns Jacob that my father is a trickster. He's a gangster. He, he, he will do anything to make a buck. And he will take you for a ride. Can you handle my father? Jacob says, I can handle him. Now, I will see as much as we can get through today. Um, it's debatable how much he can get through, how much he can get away with, how much who wins. Lovin does pretty well till the tail end of the story, which I guess... That's all that matters anyways. Like, at the end, who wins? So um, 
lo- so Rachel goes home. She tells her father, um, my cousin is here, right? Your, si- your sister's son is here. So Lovan comes running out. If the slave that he remembers who came for his sister was loaded with 10 camels of money and gold and silver and clothing and food, who knows what the son has? And he goes out and no camels, no, no, no piles of money, no clothes, like no servants, like something's wrong here. So he figures, you know, maybe um, he was afraid of robbers. It's all tucked into, you know, little hidden pockets. So he gives him a big hug and pats him down. And again, feeling nothing. Some say he gave him a kiss to see maybe he's hiding diamonds in his mouth. And uh, he sees no money. So Jacob explains to his uncle what happened, to Uncle Lovan what happened. And the Uncle Lovan, it really is just in it for the money. So when Jacob says he has no money, he says a very um, unfriendly um, term to him. He says, well, since you're family, I'll let you stay with me. And uh, which is not nice. In other words, somebody comes, somebody needs help, somebody needs to be taken care of, somebody has nothing. You don't take them into your home and say, well, since you're my relative, I'm going to take care of you. Um, Jacob works for a month for free. Lovin says, we can't do this. Like, come on, you gotta, there's got to be something in it for you. So Jacob says to Lovin, I will work for seven years for your daughter, Rachel. Well, seven years seems to be a pretty long time, and there's not even any real uh, bargaining happening. But uh, Jacob's going to put in seven years for Rachel. He's going to be tricked, and he's going to actually marry Leah first. Then he's going to marry Rachel. We'll see if we have time to get back to this because my music is now playing. When I come back, we're going to be joined by Bill Aaron, photographer, um, author of New Beginning. So hold on through the break, and we'll be right back. Maple Lane Golf Club is a 54-hole golfing treasure located in the heart of Sterling Heights. Maple Lane Golf Club offers immaculate greens, a top-flight pro shop, and inexpensive green fees. For convenience, book your tee time online at maplelanegolf.com. Come out and enjoy a great golf experience. Try our 9 and Dine special, 9 holes of golf, and enjoy food and refreshments in the Clubhouse Bistro. That's Maple Lane Golf Club in Sterling Heights. Check us out at maplelanegolf.com. Advertising your business these days can be challenging. Traditional radio and TV ads are expensive and, frankly, a bit of a crapshoot. Not to mention, the audience for over-the-air material is shrinking as more and more of us demand to see and hear what we want, when we want. Advertising on new radio media is a solution. With our live streaming programs that are also available on demand, your message is always ready when your customers are ready to watch and listen, all for a fraction of what you'd likely have been paying for other ads. NewRadioMedia.com. Call Buzz Van Houten at 248 239-9999 for more information. Hi, I'm Art, and we're the crew at Tuffy Walled Lake. We've been in Walled Lake for 20 years, and through our knowledgeable staff and customer satisfaction, we've become quite the cornerstone in our community and to our discerning customers statewide. We know how important your vehicle is to you, and we take pride in our impeccable, affordable service, and we're trying to get you back on the road as quickly and safely as we possibly can. Please stop in and see why everybody comes from all over to get their car serviced at 784 North Pontiac Trail in Wald Lake. Yep, what's up? This is your boy, Walter Jones, also known as Doc, the original Black Ranger, and you are geeking out with Geek Tainment Weekly at New Radio Media. It's worth the time. Yase Shalom, Yase Shalom. 
And we're back. And as we said, we are joined by Bill Aaron, known as Dean of American Jewish Photographers, represented by, the, if I'm pronouncing it right, the Pucker Gallery in Boston, and here to talk about his most recent book, New Beginnings. Bill, how are you? I'm good. Nice to speak with you, Svi. Yes, and I told someone that usually I, I call my guests beforehand, and we never spoke, mm-hmm. so I am so happy to talk to you. I have to tell you, I read your book. Um, uh-huh. It was in, of course, the place where I get the most concentration on my books, and uh-huh. uh, I loved it. I, I must tell you, you, it is a fantastically inspirational book. Thank but before you. before uh-huh. we get into the book, first of all, how's the weather? The weather is great. It gets a little chilly at night, goes down into the 50s, but during the day we're in the upper 70s, and oh. the fires have not reached me. Oh, good. Where I am, we're a little far south. Oh, good. Are they? Are are you getting affected by all the smoke and all the like? Can you smell the smoke? Uh, about two, um, for about two days, uh, a couple of days ago. There was ash in the air and all over the cars, and it was very smoky air, but it didn't last that long. Okay, good. I'm happy there. Yeah, Yeah, Baruch Shem. Yeah, very good. Okay, so let's let's talk about you a little bit. Um, So we said you're a photographer. We're going to talk about your book. How did you get started in photography? (laughs) Well, that was, it's kind of, there are two incidents from my childhood. Um, One uh, was, uh, I was, vacationing with my mom in Atlantic City, and there's was, I think it still exists, Steel Pier. It's like a, an outdoor arcade on a pier that goes out over the water. And, um, you know, in those days, I was allowed to <clears throat> roam free. Uh, and I walked onto the pier, and in the beginning was this, uh, at the beginning of the pier was this great big roulette wheel. So I had a nickel in my pocket. I walked over, and I have no idea why, but I put a nickel down on 48, and the roulette wheel landed on 48. And the guy looks at me, and he goes to take down one of the big stuffed teddy bears. And I said, no, 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 I don't want that. And he gives me a kind of frown. He says, well, what do you want? I said, I want that uh, there. And I pointed to this brownie hawkeye camera and it was you know one of these kits with a flash a camera a camera by the way i still have and it was the start of a beautiful love of photography then when i was home i started delivering a weekly newspaper and on my route was a group of stores this is before the days of strip malls and one of them was a um photography store where you would go to have your film developed and prints made and uh, one day you know, it always smelled kind of funny so one day I screwed up my courage and I asked what the smell was so the guy says oh come here uh, let me show you and he takes me into a back room that's lit with a red light and there was an enlarger and all the chemicals which is what I was smelling and a negative was in the enlarger and he said let me show you and he exposed the negative, and he put the the paper in the developer, and I just I can still remember that magical feeling of watching 
come up uh, on the paper gradually with the, uh, while it was in the developer. And that that I, is cool. I've never lost that. And every time I point my camera, um, I feel something akin to that. Yeah, mind you, um, my kids wouldn't even know what you're talking about. In other words, <laughs> really? what, and even the camera is like, why, why have a camera? I have my phone. Like, the, right. when I went to Israel as a 13-year-old, I had, yeah. a, you know, an SLR camera, and uh -huh. I took slides. Yeah. And the, the film only, only produced slides, and I had, yeah. like, an album with thousands of slides. My kids don't know from slides. They don't know from slide right. projectors. Right. They know you take a picture. If you really need it printed, just, okay, send it to Walmart or wherever we send it. It's right. like a... Right. I mean, I imagine you use... Do you use digital or you still use film? I, um, when Canon came out with its first digital, professional digital camera, I was in the store where I spend all my excess money, and the uh, salesman, it's a big camera store out here, probably the main one, and the salesman who I had a relationship with says, come here, let me show you something. And he takes the camera and a lens out of the box, and he says, go walk around the block. And I went out to the corner, and I took a picture, and I looked at the back of the camera, uh, the LCD screen, and I saw the image come up, and I thought, oh, my God. So I went right back in the store and said, put it on my account. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine what that camera cost you and what a similar camera would cost nowadays. It's unbelievable. Right, right, right. The phones are better than that camera. Yeah, I, I, and, and, the, and your original camera as well. Yes, I, I, I get it well. Oh, clearly. Um, yeah. Before we get into the book... Um, I, I know you actually have a, a bunch of other books, and most of them are with a Jewish theme, whether it was the yes. Jewish South or whether it was the or Holocaust survivors. Mm. How or why did you get into that specific area of photography? Well, I, I've always had a... Um, I come from a not, not very observant family, and uh, I've always had this fascination with my Judaism. And about the time, I'm a, a, a career change, so I have a, a PhD in sociology. And while I was trying to figure out what to do with my life after I decided that sociology was not my niche, um, I took a year off. And you know, you cannot, I, I, I've been working since I was nine years old, so I cannot do nothing. I mean, it was just impossible for me. So I began photographing a lot, and what I was drawn to um, was my Judaism. We, we were living in New York at the time. There was the New York Chavarah where we were members, and I began photographing the rituals that, we, that were involved uh, with our practice of Judaism. And the Chavarah was very, it was more on the observant side, but they were very interested in the aesthetics of prayer. So they had no objection to my trying to transform the aesthetics of praying into a, an aesthetic image of that. Um, and uh, so I, it's been a lifelong journey. I mean, I've had commercial work to support myself and pay the mortgage, so to speak. But um, whenever I had a chance, I would try and go out and do something with my Jewish heritage. The K 
cancer book is a digression from that, but it's similar in that it involves something that I went through with my personal experience. Um, I was diagnosed with cancer in 1993, and there was nothing at the time. The Internet was, uh, was non-existent for, for, you know, the average person. So I would go to medical libraries and everything, you know, whatever they put into the medical books is, you know, the horror stories. And it absolutely petrified me. So um, about 2004, when I was re-diagnosed, I began to think, I wish there were a book that existed that would uh, have enough people in it Enough different ages, enough different diagnoses, enough different stages, so that it would be useful for me to read and see how other people dealt with their crises. Yeah, not and, only that, I was going to ask you, um, mm-hmm. on the front of the cover you say, The Triumphs of 120 Cancer Survivors. Yes. I was actually going to ask you, I can't remember where in the book it says it, um, and we'll talk about some of the stuff in the book because I, I just think it's very inspirational, Somewhere in the book, they call it cancer winners. Yes. And, yeah, and I would have uh, thought you would have written on the cover the triumphs of 120 cancer winners, but I, you didn't. That's a, good, that's a good point. You weren't around when we were trying to decide on a title. You see, you should have known me earlier. I could have helped you out. Right. Then it would have been, you know, I don't know if it's a bestseller yet, but, uh, but we're certainly working on it. Doing well. So you actually answered a different question I had, and that was... Um, why did you digress to, to um, we're going to call it writing a book. This is, for those who understand, it's a, it's a uh, you have 120 survivors and pictures for the most part of, of families, of families, whether it's parents, whether it's uh, older adults, whether it's younger children, um, smiling, um, showing what's important to them, a lot of smiling, a lot of laughing. Again, these are survivors, and you go through this book. These are people that many had more than once, very difficult cancers. Not all of them uh, even believe they had a chance to survive. Right. And we'll talk about See? some of the stuff, but um, but um, oh, so now I lost my train of thought. Okay, so you 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 put together the book. All right, let's let's back up. So you wanted to write an inspirational book so people would have something to look at to say, you know what, I could win. Instead of sitting, unfortunately, uh, when people are getting uh, treatments and stuff and they all feel like they're down, you know, people survive. There are survivors. And there may be certain things that all the survivors have in common. Certainly in your book, there's something they all have in common. So before I get to my first break, but in in a couple seconds... What does everybody in your book have in common, for the survivors at least? A sense of gratitude. You know, everybody that wasn't the word I thought you were going to say. Gratitude. Eh. They, uh, when you're diagnosed with cancer, you feel very much alone. Even if you're in a room with a bunch of other people who are diagnosed with cancer, gradually you feel less alone and more akin to those people. But what you do with that sense of gratitude varies from person to person. But let me, if we have a few seconds, you made a very good point a minute ago. Um, Early, I discovered and was reinforced by all the families that I was able to to get to, families of, of small children, that cancer happens to the whole family. It doesn't just happen to the individual. 
And there, Bill, I'm going to put... Bill, hold that thought. We're going to get back into that thought because my music is playing. And we have to take a break. So when we come back to the break, we're going to continue with Bill Aaron talking about his book, New Beginnings, and cancer survivors are cancer winners. Hold through the break. We'll be right back. Plus, the latest LiftMaster garage door openers and the toughest retractable screens on the market. All by the push of a button, Tarno Doors is celebrating its 50th year anniversary and is the recipient of the 2016 Subcontractor of the Year from the Home Builders Association. Tarno knows doors. Tarno knows doors. Hi, I'm Art, and we're the crew at Tuffy Walled Lake. We've been in Walled Lake for 20 years. And through our knowledgeable staff and customer satisfaction, we've become quite the cornerstone in our community and to our discerning customers statewide. We know how important your vehicle is to you, and we take pride in our impeccable, affordable service. And we're trying to get you back on the road as quickly and safely as we possibly can. Please stop in and see why everybody comes from all over to get their car serviced at 784 North Pontiac Trail in Wald Lake. Maple Lane Golf Club is a 54-hole golfing treasure located in the heart of Sterling Heights. Maple Lane Golf Club offers immaculate greens, a top-flight pro shop, and inexpensive green fees. For convenience, book your tee time online at maplelanegolf.com. Come out and enjoy a great golf experience. Try our 9 and Dine special, 9 holes of golf, and enjoy food and refreshments in the Clubhouse Bistro. That's Maple Lane Golf Club in Sterling Heights. Check us out at maplelanegolf.com. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm David. Join us for fun and adventure on our new show, PodQuesters, where we fight through imaginary battles and pray to the dice gods for good rolls. Yes, it's an epic sweeping adventure. We try to fulfill our destinies without driving the dungeon master crazy. I thought that was the point. Anyways, check us out here on newradiomedia.com, Fridays, PodQuesters. See you there. And we're back with Bill Aaron, author of New Beginnings, The Triumphs of 120 Cancer Survivors. And, which I'm happy for that, uh, when I asked Bill to tell me a theme through the book, Bill, you picked the word gratitude. And actually, that wasn't going to be my word. But I'm going to let you finish. You were talking about the cancer is not just the patient, but it's really the family. So now I'm going to let you finish that thought. Okay. Um, I, I think that's best illustrated um, in the families of young children who are diagnosed with cancer, but I think it, it exists to uh, a great extent by anybody else. I mean, I was a grown man. I had two young children when I was diagnosed, and um, I saw what they went through. Um, but uh, let me just read a short quote from this wonderful little girl, Manez Nazarian, who was seven when she was diagnosed. And her mother said, when she was little, she loved her long hair. After we shaved her head, she looked in the mirror and said, I may look ugly, Mommy, on the outside, but inside, I am beautiful. So don't cry, Mommy. Then she started laughing and singing, don't you wish your girlfriend was bald like me. You know, I actually just pulled out that page a minute ago. I can't remember where it went as I was flipping through. It's amazing. 
You know, what I, what I found amazing through the book, and that's why I, and I love the word gratitude. I think that's a fantastic word. And by the way, and we'll see if we have time, the book is not specifically religious people, irreligious people, Jewish, Christian, Catholic. It really runs the gamut of personalities and types of people and ages of people and different kinds of cancer. Right, right, exactly. So that somebody like myself, a cynic at heart, could find something to identify with and uh, give me hope and let me know what the journey's like, um, particularly after survival. You know, it, people talk about cancer <clears throat> as uh, two stages, diagnosis and treatment, but nobody talks about what happens after the treatment ends. And a number of people in the book called that the silent phase of cancer, the third phase. It's silent because while you're in treatment, all your friends are calling up. Uh, you're talking to other people if, you know, if you're, if, if you're like that, as I was, um, calling other people, finding out what they did and, and what would be appropriate for you to do. Um, and, and it's very busy, and it's busy, noisy. Um, but then when treatment's over, the doctor says, okay, great, come back for a test in three months, six months, whatever it is. And you go home and you sit down and you say, what am I going to do now? I mean, there's this total emptiness. It's anomic. Yeah, you know, one and of the things that's interesting, uh, Bill, is there's more than a couple people in the book who, after their survival, specifically created organizations. It seems like most of them are on the West Coast, but they became national organizations for exactly what you're talking about, for for somewhere to people to go and deal with what you're calling that third part of after you've gone through the treatments and after you've survived and and now what? And right. and I'm going to even take it a step further and then I'll let you comment on it. Um, all these people, again, children, it's a little different, but it'll be the families, older, younger, um, once they survive the cancer... They, the petty things in life are just no longer important. And they look right. at a big picture and they look at family right. and they have a whole different outlook about I'm going to live every day. I'm not going to let the little things bother me. And, um, and that really, by the way, is what, is what I took away from the book, that every single one of these people when they're writing, whether, again, you'll read the book, um, whether it's parents talking about their... Um, reaction to what's happened to their life or the survivor themselves, they're all talking this almost the same tone of voice about how, you know, life now has a different meaning for them. Exactly. I think that's, that's, um, uh, that's very perceptive. They, uh, people, because it's, uh, uh, my, my, uh, my, my thinking on that is that because it's such a lonely feeling, be diagnosed with cancer, um, that um, that all of a sudden you discover these other people who have had it, and if you survive and you survive well, you want to do something to help them because they're your new peer group. Many of the people now um, date their birthdays by either when they were diagnosed or when uh, they went into remission after treatment as opposed to the day they were born. 
Wow, amazing. I think Johnny Immerman says it best um, in, in what you were talking about. He says, more important than any personal story, I believe, is the challenge to think about what we can do to help other people. So um, I, that, that, to me, sums up very well what people feel um, when they, they, they have this sense of gratitude that they survived, whether it's to God, to the doctors, to themselves, to the cosmos, to karma. Um, but then uh, when you're grateful, I think it, 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 moves, it, it moves you to do something for other people who are in need uh, the way you were in need not so long ago. Amazing. So here's, well, I have two different questions. We'll see which one comes to my mind first. My first question is, how did you find, is how did you decide who and where to go to find all these survivors? They obviously don't all live in the same neighborhood, though many of them um, seem to be out in California. Right. And how did you decide what picture to take of them? Well, we would um, sit there when I arrived um, with all my equipment and an assistant. We'd sit down and talk. And if the people were kind of loose, or if people were the opposite, if they were, you know, struggling and a little bit uncomfortable, I would ask them for a cup of tea. And I found out surprisingly, because the first time I did that, I really wanted one because my energy was low. It was a long drive to get to them. And um, that doing something for me seemed to loosen them up, and we would talk. And most people, I would say the minimum conversation was an hour and and most people were you know closer to two hours and sometimes it's over about their whole experience i would leave it open-ended there was no structure to the interview just what happened um what was the diagnosis what was the treatment what happened after it ended and we would have these incredibly emotional uh experiences that we shared and I, I'm just so grateful that these people opened up their hearts to me. Um, and then, um, and then at the end, I would say, well, let's think about constructing a photograph that illustrates how you feel. And they would say something. I would add something. They would say it was a collaborative effort. Sometimes it was where we interviewed. Sometimes it was elsewhere the um the cover picture of the two girls jumping that's a fountain at loyola marymount university in los angeles and we interviewed we sat right around there there are chairs off to the side it's a little place to sit and afterwards i said well tell me how you feel so they looked at each other they stood up they grabbed their hands. They went to this little platform around the, the um, fountain, and they jumped in the air screaming. And, you know, I photographed, and I, of course, had them repeat it ten times. Well, yeah. The first one was the best. It always is. Um, so, yeah, right, because that's the spontaneity. And that's what I, I like to capture. You know, I, I grew up in photography in the days of black-and-white street photography. But I became gravitated more, not so much to capture people on the sly, 
but to interact with people. I mean, I just love talking to people about who they are, what their experiences are, because um, I find that every person has a story. And so it became, you know, this morphed into, you know, you might call it portraiture or environmental portraiture, collaborative portraiture, something like that. Uh, yeah, which I tell you, I, I'm... Even though people can't see me, they can see me now. I'm still glancing through the book, enjoying the pictures, enjoying the quotes. Um, as I'm getting close to uh, to when we have to wrap it up, um, I'd like to give you, oh, let's say if we can do it in a minute, what would you like people to take away from your book? And then I'll tell them how they can find it. Um, that cancer... Being diagnosed with cancer is not an end. That no matter how much time you have left, it is important to make the most of it and give that much more meaning to your life. Um, when you're diagnosed with cancer, you could have the rest of your natural life, or it might be shorter and cut short by the cancer. But as long as you're alive, you still have a foot in the game, and uh, it's important. To know it's important to know that that's possible. Yes, and if people take that away, then they got the message of the book because you don't even mean if they do survive, even if they're not going to survive, because none of us live yeah. forever. But you got to take what you have and live. Right. Again, we've right. been speaking to Bill Ahrens. Bill, thank you so much. The author of New Beginnings The Triumphs of 120 Kansas Survivors, photographed by Bill Aaron, forward by Jane Brody. Um, of course, you can get it on Amazon. Or you can go to Bill's website. It's www.billaron. It's B-I-L-L-A-R-O-N.com. You can actually see, see some of Bill's other pictures and other um, stuff on his website. Bill, I appreciate it. I hope people um, learned from what your book is trying to accomplish. And certainly I hope they go out and purchase it. And I thank you for the inscription that you sent me in the book. Uh, thank you. This was a pleasure speaking with you today. Okay, Bill, be well, and one day maybe I'll be in a warm area like L.A., and I'll drop by and say hello. Let me know if you ever get this way. That I will. Thank you, Bill, and have a great day. You too, Steve. Okay, wow. He was really interesting. I actually was not expecting um, some of the things he said, uh, but the book, really, I, I had a great time reading it. Of course, I didn't mention I read all my books in the bathroom because that way nobody bothers me, and I get lost there, and I close the door, and, and life is really fine. So um, we have maybe another minute and a half till our next break. Um, I wanted to just touch on a few more things, talk about gratitude over here. Um, all these Torah portions um, are over and over about people's gratitude, um, actually in the tribes that are named. So the fourth child of Leah, his name is Yehuda or Judah. And the reason Leah called him that name was because of gratitude. Because all the, 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 the matriarchs, they all knew that Jacob was going to have 12 children. He was going to have four wives. So you do the math, every, every wife gets three kids. Well, now she has four. So she says, now that I have four, I have something extra to be thankful for. Therefore, she names her child the name, thank you. His name is Judah or Yehuda. It's from the word moda. It means to thank. She thanks God. And actually, the commentaries say that she is the first one, biblically, that actually thanks God. And here comes my music again. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Rabionis and Goldson. We have to get to one of our last letters in the alphabet this week. 
Hold on through the break and we'll be right back. At Murray's Park City, we're known for offering customer service you won't get in any chain store or online. But don't take it from me, just listen to what our customers have to say. The employees at Murray's are knowledgeable, courteous. They make you feel like you're at home. Pick up a can of Seafoam Fuel System Treatment for only $6.99 or a 5-quart container of Mobile One Motor Oil for just $28.95. Murray's Park City and Pontiac Trail at Maple Road in Walled Lake. We've got the parts you need when you need them. Do you want to see things like this? Did you just say you died? <laughs> well, I mean, technically. Or maybe even something like this. We'll do nothing but destroy your corpses and burn them all for my dogs. The dogs are gone. And sometimes, a little of this. We need to have a talk. <laughs> I take my axe and I smash it. No! <laughs> and check out Podquesters, the show where we tackle ghoulish goblins, fiendish foes, and dangerous tricks. Oh, like the singer? No, the dragon creature. Oh. Anyways, Podquesters, Fridays, only on NewRadioMedia.com. Welcome back to Who's Got Chutzpah. I'm your host, Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. And are you ready? Uh, Andy, what holiday is this associated with? Oh, boy. Uh, uh. Sukkot? I'm sorry, that's not the answer we were looking for. Whitney, for the win. Can you tell us which holiday is this? I'm I know. Shavuot. No, I'm sorry. I've got the answer. Ta-da! What? My show, Let's Talk Torah, where we talk Torah, holidays, faith, and all the things that help us live our life. That's Let's Talk Torah, Thursdays at 3 p.m. on NewRadioMedia.com. That's pretty good. And we're back. And as I get the nod from Alana, so Rabbi Yonason Goldson of Ethical Imperatives. Yonason, how are you today? I'm great. I almost spaced out again, but I'm here to go. I am glad we found you. That's why we have only the best calling from our little phone booth there. Okay, Yonason, the clock is ticking. Go for it. All right, well. In the headlines, really tragic news from California, these terrible wildfires, and the town of Paradise, California, was, was virtually wiped off the map. Um, after which, uh, President Trump tweeted that um, it's really the fault of poor forest management. Uh, he may be right, but his timing wasn't so great. Better to be empathetic, to sympathize, and then reach out to the victims, and you can talk about uh, who's responsible later. And, and this idea of sensitivity in how to speak, even when it's the truth, even when you're right, uh, to speak in a way that's sensitive, we find it at the end of this week's Torah portion. Um, Jacob and his family, they've grown. Uh, he has a lot of children. He has his four wives. And God comes to him and says, okay, you've been there long enough. Pack up and, and, uh, and take off. You, know, you, know, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't stay there any longer. And, um, and so, so Jacob goes to his wives and he comes with this whole long speech, and he talks about how hard he worked for his father, their, uh, his father-in-law, their father, and, and, how, and how he didn't get paid what he was worth, and how he wasn't treated well, and how he wasn't treated honestly. And now God has come to him and said, it's time to go. And he says to his wives, what do you think we should do? It seems kind of uh, crazy. I mean, if God comes and tells you what to do, you do it. What's the question? But Jacob understood that it's different when people are told what to do 
than when they have the opportunity to make their own decisions. Obviously, they were going to leave, but he presented the case to his wives in a way where they would come to that conclusion on their own, they would agree with the decision, then they would be completely at peace with it rather than feeling that they had been forced into it, even though it was clear that it was the right thing. So it's an important lesson for us when we speak to people, when we deal with people, we may be right, but we have to express ourselves in a way that's going to make it easier for other people to do the right thing and easier for all of us to work together in a common cause. Yanison, thank you as always. Great message. That was Rabbi Yonison Goldson of Ethical Imperatives, and uh, we'll speak to you in a couple weeks. Very good. Okay, have a good Chavez. Be well. Okay, great message, even though I'm not into politics, but uh, hopefully you got the message, whichever side of the fence you're on. But as I told you, we're up to our second to last letter. Kelsey, are you ready? Kelsey is ready. So we're up to the second to last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's really, it's really a pair of letters. Um, you see it there. It's, a, it's got a base and it's got um, three almost like fingers sticking up. Um, it could be a shin or a sin. And it's depending where that is placed on the right, if it's on the right upper, above the right finger, we'll call it, it becomes a shin, an S-H sound. And if the dad is on the other side of the letter all the way to the left, I had to check there for a second, um, so all the way to the left, so then it becomes a sin, an S type of sound. Its numerical value is 300, which is interesting because it's got those three arms sticking up over there, or three fingers sticking up. Um, and my word for my, my word of the week I thought was pretty appropriate. Um, it's not the shin sound, it is the sin sound, and that is the word simcha. Simcha means joy. When somebody is having a joyous occasion, they say we are making a simcha. That's uh, one of the words used. It's a a, it's a Jewish word used a lot. Someone has a simcha. Somebody has a joyous occasion. We bless people that they should always have joyous occasions. And, uh, and it's really an attitude. In other words, we can have the attitude to be in a good mood. We can choose to be happy. Not everything goes the way we want. And not everything is always pleasant. Really rolls in quite nicely with, the, with, the, uh, with Bill Aaron in our interview today. That if I have the right attitude, I could be happy. It doesn't mean things are always great. But uh, certainly I have to appreciate the life I have. And when the good times roll, you got to appreciate those also instead of just always complaining when things are not as good. So I see I, I, this week I think I'll have enough time to do it. I have a story. And I was in a bookstore a couple weeks ago in uh, New York and I saw this uh, book. It was pretty interesting. So the story is told about nine-year-old Joey. Nine-year-old Joey was asked by his mother what he learned in Sunday school. And he said, well, Mom, I got to tell you, God sent Moses behind enemy lines on a rescue mission to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. At the Red Sea, he had engineers build pontoon bridges. He used his walkie-talkie to radio headquarters and call in an airstrike. They sent in the bombers, and the Israelites were saved. Joey's mother says, come on, Joey. Is that what your teacher taught you in Sunday school? So Joey says to his mother, he says, no, Ma, I got to tell you the truth. That is not what my teacher said. But if I told you the story that my mother really said, you'd never believe me. I figured this one would go over better. So the person writing the story, um, he wrote it better than I could say it. He says, what is unbelievable to the skeptic and detractor 
is very believable to those who have learned the lesson of faith. and Or in plain English, um, what he means to say is that, and I do it all the time, I'll tell you stories, I told you a whole bunch of stories today. All the stones became one stone. Jacob all of a sudden had superhuman strength that he was probably 77 years old and lifts that rock off the ground. Or um, we didn't even get into all the stories that we could have uh, imagined. But sometimes we hear these stories and we say, come on. And I've had study partners say, you don't really believe that, Rabbi, do you? And the answer is, I really do believe it. And that's part of faith, part of people who study the Bible, who read the Bible, who, uh, who are religious. Yes, there are things we believe, even though we can't feel them, even though we can't touch them. But that's part of our belief. And those who don't want to believe, then they can say everything is a fairy tale. And it's hard to argue with a person who doesn't want to believe. And there goes my music. So again, thank you to our wonderful sponsors and listeners. You know, I couldn't do without you. Thank you to my wonderful production team, Tony, Kelsey, Alyssa, and this week, Alana. Thank you for sitting in. I hope I've left you with some food for thought. Until next week, I'm Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah New Radio Media. And until next week, don't forget to think about it. Any dream.